Hello and welcome to Research Top Tips from Myelopathy Matters, supporting AOSpine Recode DCM. In this series, we are asking leading experts about core research concepts that can help support existing, but also develop new DCM researchers around the world. In today's episode, we hear from spine surgeon Dr. Jamie Wilson on his training path from UK neurosurgical resident to assistant professor of neurosurgery at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. My name is Dr. Benjamin Davies, neurosurgeon scientist and founder of myelopathy.org, and this is a research top tips from Myelopathy Matters. So welcome to this mini-series from Myelopathy Matters, supporting AO Spine Recode DCM, a process that really aims to accelerate knowledge discovery that can change outcomes in DCM. So a critical part of knowledge discovery is having an active and invested research community. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Jamie Wilson, now an Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery and Co-Director of the Comprehensive Spine Program at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, USA because Jamie's career path highlights that research can really start at any stage. And my first question to him was, what were his aspirations when he first started his residency training in Leeds? When I went into residency training, I knew I had a love of neuroanatomy, the brain, uh, the interplay between the brain and the spinal cord. And initially, actually, I wanted to go into endoscopic skull-based surgery. I, I saw that as an amazing use of technology navigation and a great example of how we've really refined the approach over the years from invasive craniotomy surgeries to deal with these types of pituitary tumors through to very small minimally invasive procedures where the patients essentially can go home after just a couple of days. But I, I quickly realized when I started my residency that there was a whole spectrum of pathologies uh, that could require surgical treatment in terms of uh, uh, neurosurgery and aspects of neurological pathology. And I was really excited to get my hands on and learn as, as many techniques as possible. And, and so at that early stage, as you started to evolve in, in what you were experiencing, you know, had you, had you heard of DCM at that stage? You know, was clinical research on your, on your agenda? I came from an academic foundation program. I had the pleasure of doing an integrated degree when I was at university. And I was always involved in research. However, when I started a residency, the burden of residency really sort of hit me like a, like a ton of bricks. Neurosurgery residency is one of the hardest things that I've done in, in my life. It is sort of emotionally draining, physically draining, mentally draining. And when I first sort of went into it, I just wanted to gain as much clinical experience as possible, become as, as competent as possible at the sort of general neurosurgery procedures that you do on call. And then actually, I dabbled in a bit of research throughout my time, doing some case reports, doing some work on elements of pediatric brain tumors. And then midway through my career, I sort of pivoted and changed tack towards a career in spine surgery. And that's when I started to hear more and more about elements of pathologies in spine surgery, such as, such as DCM and the different approaches for, for DCM. And that's when I started doing some bit more research towards spine pathologies and spine surgery aspects. But I will say I was 
never really offered the opportunity to really pursue a PhD or other research opportunities. But also I, I felt a heavy burden of sort of service provision. And I wanted to make sure that I, I contributed alongside my other residents to make sure that that we provided the best service for, for our patients. And at the time, I thought the way I could contribute better would be to have uh, kind of build my armamentarium of, of clinical skills and kind of surgical experience rather than, than doing research. So you allude there to potential transition points. And, and what do you think those key pivot points were or where did they take you? I can remember midway through uh, kind of about 2013, 2014, I was about three or four years into my residency. I had some frank discussions with my program director and my other mentors in, in my department. And I knew that I enjoyed a lot of the different operative aspects of neurosurgery. I mentioned potential skull base. But I also found that I had a bit of a talent, if for want of a better word, in spine surgery. And, you know, I was at the age of fifth year residency. I was doing advanced procedures such as A-lifts and, and lateral approaches to the spine. And I, I really started to enjoy that. And I enjoyed that element. And so when I was talking to my mentors about you know, potential fellowships, they suggested perhaps I do a spine fellowship and become a spine surgeon. And the more I thought about it, and the more I thought about my future and eventually becoming a consultant, I thought that spine surgery offered me the opportunities in my practice that would provide a very rewarding, very fulfilling career. And that's when I sort of decided to pursue it more. And that, of course, took you to Toronto for your spine fellowship, which by all accounts seems to have transformed your perspectives or changed your perspectives at least, and, and perhaps onward directions from there again. Absolutely. I, I was very grateful. I spoke to a couple of colleagues who had done the Toronto Fellowship and then come back to the UK. They said it was a tremendous experience and I should do everything that I could to go. And then I had the opportunity to interview and then actually travel to Toronto and, and meet Professor Failings and the other surgeons who contributed to the Fellowship. And I saw it as a, a year away from the UK, a year to see something new, gain more experiences. But the more I did, the more experience I achieved during that fellowship. It was only about two or three months in where I, I said to my mentor, Professor Failings, that perhaps I'd want to make the move permanent. And perhaps I'd want to travel to North America because I can see that I feel that I'm a better surgeon and uh, a better clinician in this environment than perhaps I would be back in the NHS. But I had a fundamental conversation with him where he he sat me down over a beer and he said, you know, if you want to be the best surgeon you want to be, then you, you should think about becoming a, a clinical academic because the more academic experience you have and the more scientific rigor you apply to your practice, the better surgeon you will, you will become. At the time, I took that with a bit of a pinch of salt and I said, okay, well, I, I think it's a good idea. Perhaps I do my master's, even though it's late in, in my career, perhaps I do my master's or a PhD, depending on where the time takes me. But, you know, I want to continue to Im improve my clinical experience. And what, what I can say, two years after, or two and a half years after that discussion, having done my master's, having done my research in clin clinical epidemiology, I, I think he's absolutely 100% right. I think my research training, my academic training has really improved the way that I assess patients, my application of knowledge and my application of my clinical ability. And it's been an, a tremendous asset for myself in my career. And I'm, I'm forever grateful for him taking the time out to tell me and guide me in, in that respect. 
So that's really fascinating. So you, you pick up on that sort of pivot point that perhaps initially you didn't buy into, but gradually you have, and, and now you really do. Was that a gradual transition or were there further sort of key pivot points when you started to realize that that clinical academic aspect could really help you as a clinician? It was just the more application of scientific principles into my practice, spending more time with Professor Failing's Dr. Mazakot on the sort of Toronto rotations and being part of the journal clubs and and scientifically analyzing outcomes and i started to really believe that actually to be a good surgeon you need to know what you're doing and how you can improve and to continue to to think about ways you can improve and if you're not measuring your outcomes then it's difficult to know where you are and how you can improve and if you're not keeping abreast of the literature and going to conferences and hearing the latest scientific approaches then how can you say that you are the best surgeon that you can be? And so I think that was really fundamental for me when I started to see in practice, when you start to apply scientific principles, you can really improve patient outcomes. At first, I would say that it was it was difficult potentially for me to rationalize the increased experience with academics. But I think over time, the proof was in the pudding. And when you start to see that change in front of you, I think then you buy into the concept uh, much much better and so what about the sort of transition into that did, is this something that you found difficult to move from that very clinical basis obviously you did allude to some some previous academic foundations um, but how is that transition into a more sort of research orientated environment and practice it was very difficult because there's a lot of time demands you know writing papers performing analyses writing research grants And you and I both know that you could potentially spend weeks to months writing up a research grant, submit it, and then you don't get the funding. And it feels like a real kick in the teeth. And there are some great high points in academic medicine, and there's some real low points in in academic medicine. But I think what really sets out clinician scientists as, as other physicians is the belief that if you are buying into the science, if you are performing rigorous application of scientific principles, and you are asking yourself these open and honest questions, then I think you can feel that you're really pushing the arena forward and you're really helping society and helping your specialty rather than just existing and riding the wave of other discoveries. So one of the other difficulties that can coincide, I think, with balancing that clinical academic perspective is obviously looking after the family, keeping everyone happy. Was there any potential frictions, challenges? Obviously, you've had to relocate from one country to the next. You've incorporated another discipline into your day-to-day life. What are the sort of potential ramifications or did you face any challenges in, in that sort of area? It was a challenge. I sold my house before I went to Toronto and I had some, some money in, in the bank and that helped transition to practicing in Canada, becoming a permanent resident of Canada, enrolling in the University of Toronto to do my master's. And then having to do the exams for Canada and also the US, it all took money and time and and effort. And there was a bit of a toll on, you know, on my sort of social life and my my private life. I'm very grateful to say that I have the love and support of a fantastic wife and three wonderful children. And I was able to balance things appropriately so that we could go on to the next rung of my career. And with, with a fantastic support from my mentor, Professor Failings, and also my my head of department now, uh, Professor Abosh, I was able to make that transition from Canada and then now into the United States in Omaha, Nebraska. And I'm very much enjoying my job now. I work for an institution that I think really supports me in terms of my clinical role. 
Um, I have fantastic colleagues. I really think here I am giving my patients my best clinical skill, giving them the best chance of outcomes. And I'm uh, I'm just very grateful for everyone that's taken the, the time and the sacrifice to put into my career to where I am now. It's very, very open account. And I guess that it picks up that, you know, it's not to be taken lightly, but it, it really can obviously be extremely rewarding in the end. So you've obviously now, Jamie, experienced three different healthcare systems, the, the NHS in the UK, uh, the healthcare system in Canada, and now, of course, in, in the United States. What, what perspectives do you have on those systems differ and, and what they can offer clinical academics in, in their careers? I've had a tremendous benefit from working with some excellent spine surgeons in the UK, Canada, and uh, now here in the United States. The environments are very different. Obviously, the NHS is the training you, that is provided is through deaneries and through hospital systems. And there's an element of service provision. In, in Canada and the US, the residency programs are very much provided by university affiliations. Our residency program here is the University of Nebraska program, and our residents graduate from the University of Nebraska residency program. The onus when it comes to academics, therefore, is slightly different because we have a university backing in North America, and that sort of changes things slightly in terms of your role in the healthcare system in terms of education, but also in terms of the availability and access to certain funds. So at my hospital, uh, the University of Nebraska, the Dean and, and the College of Medicine have discretionary funds where they can give to pilot projects to help stimulate small ideas and to get pilot data to form big grants. And we have a lot of amenities available to us on campus for grant writing and to help with that process. Very similar to the University of Toronto. The University of Toronto, I'd say, is a, a neurosurgery powerhouse when it comes to academics. And they have the infrastructure that is, is tremendous in terms of helping graduate students, graduate researchers and clinical academics really foster their niche and devise their own academic program. A lot of that is lost in, in the UK. Now, a lot of the bigger hospitals in the UK, they do neurosurgery training, obviously closely affiliated to universities. But I would say that there is a kind of a hard line between the universities and the hospitals. But it's, it's difficult to, to break through. Now, I know a lot of people have kind of broken the glass and done PhDs midway through there or at the end of their career at the university affiliation. It just is much more difficult and takes a bit more work. And in terms of access to funds, it's, it's much, much more difficult. So that's what I think is really the, the fundamental differences between perhaps a North American environment and the UK environment. I think certainly we hear from Brian Kwan how fundamental getting things off the ground, those sort of small seed starter grants can be, and, and certainly accessing them is extremely difficult. And if you allude to better resources, that certainly, I think, could help help a research get off the ground, at least. I think in, the, in this day and age, you know, research grants are extremely competitive, and there's only a certain amount of money, and there's only a certain number of pathologies that, that could be studied. Cancer developmental abnormalities. These are huge areas, huge diseases that affect millions of people. And when you're trying to get funding in spine surgery, but only there's a particular pathology of spine surgery, then it's sometimes very difficult to rationalize and to provide the rationale to provide that funding for these studies. It's something that's well known. I think in terms of academic representation, spine um, and spinal academics are relatively underrepresented. 
But I think that the work that you're doing, the work that AO Spine is doing worldwide, trying to kind of increase and improve the reputation of clinical academics in spine surgery, I think hopefully should turn that around in the, in the future. Looking back and, and, and taking stock of where you've got to so far, is there any advice you may give to somebody starting out their career now who wants to aspire to be a clinical academic? Perhaps anything you might have done differently in, in your own career so far? From my experience, I'd say it's never too late. If you are an ST7, ST8 registrar in, in the UK in neurosurgery or any other specialty and you think that it's too late to do a PhD or master's, then I'd say no. There's always the opportunity to learn new techniques. There's always the opportunity to learn new approaches. And just to echo Professor Failing's comments, that the more scientific you are and the more academic background you have, then potentially the better surgeon you will become. And if I was just starting out, if I was going to advise myself back when I was just getting into a residency, I would say that really you can, you can think big the sky's the limit. I think I see a lot of trainees in the UK that I speak to now. They are you know, perhaps a little bit less world-minded. They only see a future for them in the UK. They only see a future for them potentially in the unit where they are training. I would say that there's a big world out there and there's lots of different clinical experience to be gained. And all of it will make you a better surgeon and a better physician. And if you were thinking about starting a PhD or master's or any other graduate program, then you look at places like Toronto, University of Toronto, look at places in the United States. It may be more difficult for you to get a place. It may be more difficult for you to get funding. But ultimately, 10, 20 years time, when you're you know halfway through your career, then these difficulties, these burdens, these hardships that you have to go through will all be a distant memory and, and you can rest knowledge that you are the best surgeon that you can be, the best academic you can be, and you're giving your patients your best. So big thank you to Dr. Jamie Wilson. You can find lots more information about AO Spine Recode DCM, including more top tips episodes and other resources to support your DCM research at aospine.org forward slash recode. This episode was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. To stay abreast of the latest news in the field of DCM, why not subscribe to Myelopathy Matters on your favourite podcast app? Or if you have an experience or perspective you would like to share, please drop me an email, ben at myelopathy.org. Until next time. Goodbye.